0: Our text this morning is Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. Luke 15, 11 through 32. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the son gathered all he had, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came
1: come to this parable that Christ told, Lord, I pray that it would have its full effect on our hearts and on our lives. Lord, I pray that it would give us joy at the most core of our soul, seeing what you're like. Father, convict us of sin that we might be pleasing to You. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Rejoice with the gracious Father. This is part two. These three parables that Jesus tells in Luke 15 are consecutive. Uh, They go together. And uh, we have the privilege to look at probably the most famous parable that Jesus told. And like with so many of the most familiar verses, sometimes they're so familiar that we miss the point that we failed to see what Christ or what the Word is striking at uh, in that particular situation. And so as we prepare to look at this third parable, the longer one, the one that gives much more detail, I want us to think for a moment about sin. All of us know that sin is destructive. It leads to death. Sin, as my little girls in one of their uh, songs that they listen to called The Scary Song. It says, sin is the scariest. It's the scariest of all. Because sin destroys. It's dangerous. And while all sin separates us from a holy God, we're all born in it. There's no one that can get to heaven without a Savior. There's a certain type of sin that is the most dangerous. And that sin is sin that is unseen, sin that is undetected, sin that resides in someone's soul and in their heart, but they don't perceive it and they don't see it. One of the principles in biblical counseling is sin is deceitful. It blinds us. We all know we're sinners, but we all think we know our sin. We just have this confidence. I know my struggles. I know my sin. I understand what's going on in my heart. And one of the first things that I seek to counsel someone in is to quit believing that lie. Don't believe that you see all the sin that's in your heart. That's why in Hebrews 3.12, the writer of Hebrews says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. He's talking to believers, to Christians, leading you to fall away from the living God. He says, be careful, take care, brothers lest there's this slow fade away from the living God. And then here's a solution though. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Deceitfulness is the adjective that the writer of Hebrews gives to sin. Sin. And he says, be careful, Christians, lest you slowly fade away from the living God and your heart is slowly hardened so that you're fooled by the deceitfulness of sin. But did you pick the pick up the solution in that text? But exhort one another. By ourselves, we can be blind to our sin. And what it takes is a faithful, loving brother or sister in Christ to help us understand our own hearts in our own lives. That's why Paul says the only way you grow to maturity as a Christian is within the body. As the body within the body, were built up into maturity. And so the most dangerous sin is the sin that's undetected, and it's the sin the Pharisees had. They didn't see it. They didn't know that it was there. They didn't believe it was there, and therefore there was no fight against their sin, and there was no looking for a Savior. any evangelist will tell you that the outward licentious sinner, the full-on sinner in rebellion to God who knows they're in rebellion to God is closer to salvation than the self-righteous person who loves not Christ and does not see their sin. I remember John Piper saying his, his father was a traveling evangelist and he said daddy is it hard to get a person saved he said well son that's the easier part the harder part is to get a person lost so that they know they need a savior to help them see their sin in such a way that they're broken in their heart and so as we Come and read this parable. We need to read it through the eyes of the Pharisees because that's who it is directed to. You need to pretend that you're a Pharisee. And the good news is, is you probably don't have to pretend that far, that hard, because all of us as Christians struggle to some degree with self-righteousness. We all struggle with self-righteousness. And we all need to hear this like the Pharisees needed to hear this. In the same way, we all maybe sin rebelliously in some ways. We also sin secretively like the Pharisees did. In the very next chapter in Luke sixteen fifteen, here's what Jesus says to the, to the, about the Pharisees. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He says, Pharisees, you're those that actually convince men that you're great and you're wonderful. But just so you know, what's great about among men is an abomination before God. God knows your hearts. The silliness of self-righteousness is forgetting that God knows our hearts. While we can fool men and men can praise us, God is never fooled. And the Pharisees were those that justified themselves before men. They went around arguing with people, winning arguments, convincing them, we are good and we are right. And that's who Jesus is telling this parable to. If you look at Luke 15, beginning in verse 1, here's, what, here's the context to these three parables. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then he told them, he, he first told the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then what we know as the prodigal son parable. And so the context is the Pharisees in shock, this Jesus claiming to be from God is hanging out with the sinners, e- even eating with them, even dining with them. And according to the Pharisees, they're just looking and they're like, this is an easy one. They're on the wrong team. (laughs) They're not with the right people. They're losing the arguments, evidently, if they're willing to eat with them. And two weeks ago, we talked about this game that if we're honest, we all like to play. It's when we gather together and say, We're so right, aren't we? And aren't those people so wrong? All of us can struggle to play that game. And the sickest part of that game is the most exciting part of the game is when you find sin in someone else's life. 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love doesn't rejoice in evil, but rejoices in good. If we ever find our hearts rejoicing when we find sin in someone else's heart, we're sick. We're not like God. Although it may look make you look better as you find someone else's sin, it's wayward and ungodly. And if you remember the point of those first two parables, look at verses 6 and 7. The man who leaves 99 sheep to go looking for the lost one. Verse 6 says, When he comes home, he calls together all of his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The point is this. The reason why I'm eating with the sinners and tax collectors is because they're lost and they know they're lost. And they're, coming to me because they actually want words of life. And there's nothing God loves more or joys his heart than a sinner turning from their sin and finding forgiveness in God. And the point is this, what you hate about what I'm doing, heaven rejoices in. Heaven rejoices in the saving of sinners and heaven never once has rejoiced over a self-righteous action. Ninety-nine people who view themselves as righteous, that's Jesus' point, will never make God happy, will never cause heaven to rejoice. And then the lady that lost her coin in verses 9 and 10, the same sort of result. And when she had found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. For I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. There can be no repentance without brokenness over sin. That's why the self righteous cannot repent. They have to quit being self righteous and see their life for what it is before they can be broken over their sin. And Jesus' point is this come rejoice with me. Pharisees, rather than grumble, come rejoice to see what God is doing amongst the most rebellious people in Israel. This is a time for joy and celebration. The Savior is here. So as we come to this final parable in Luke 15, there's basically three main characters. There's the younger son the older son and the father. And there also is the prostitutes that the brother says, the older brother said the younger brother devoured the property with. And in your notes, we get to see the outward sinner, the younger brother who becomes the repentant sinner. Uh, We get to see the self-righteous sinner as the older brother and then we get to see the gracious father that is takes center stage in all three of these parables. And uh, as we begin, uh, I'll just point out at the front end, the younger son represents the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those whom the self-righteous called the sinners. The older son is the scribes and Pharisees, the r- religious leaders in Israel at the time that were in rebellion to Christ. And the father represents Jesus. So let's look at it. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And I'll say at the front end of this, I can't preach this parable, without being incredibly influenced by John MacArthur's book, Tale of Two Sons, he says the proper title of this should be not the prodigal son, but the tale of two sons. And I think he's probably right. There was a man who had two sons. You know, maybe it should be the tale of two sons and a gracious father. But if you've never read the book Tale of Two Sons, I recommend it to you. Uh, one of the most, one of my favorite books John MacArthur is, has ever uh, written, and I think we even did a study early on at Sovereign Grace, a Sunday school study uh, on this parable. But there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, "Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me." Now, in order to feel the power of this parable, you have to understand the Middle Eastern worldview that the Pharisees had. That when Jesus told this parable, he he told this parable in a context, a Middle Eastern context of a culture that was a shame-honor culture. And what that means is, is there was nothing more important to any family... Than, be, than that of having honor. And there is nothing worse to any family than a son or a daughter bringing shame upon the family. You know, we'll hear about this sometime in Middle Eastern countries, how the children will be terribly abused publicly for bringing shame upon the family. And Jesus tells the most shameful story that a Pharisee could ever hear. They would want to vomit through this entire story. It is so outlandish. It is so far heaped in shame that the whole time they would have been shaking their heads. Because you have a younger son, the younger son of all people, coming to his father, saying, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, in those days, two-thirds of the property would go to the older son if a man had two sons, but that property would only go to the son once the father died. So the audacity of the younger son to come and say, give me the property now, is essentially to say, Father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so I could get my property now. To a self-righteous Pharisee, anger would burn in the heart as they thought, what type of son would bring so much shame upon a family? and upon a father. They knew the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles a father or mother, Jesus said, must surely die. That's how Jesus quotes that. How do you dishonor your father any more than this? And then the younger son's shame Is only eclipsed by the father's shame in how the father responds in the eyes of the Pharisees because we read, and he divided his property between them. What father would be so foolish to just say, okay, here's the property, here's the inheritance? Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. He liquidated the cash. If you look up at what the word prodigal means in the dictionary, it means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully and extravagantly he immediately liquidated the property. He sold cheap the farm that the family had had, the estate, whatever that was involved there, in a moment so that he could go live a wild, licentious lifestyle. Jesus is telling the most shameful story a Pharisee could ever Imagine. What, is, what does it mean that he was living recklessly? Well, if we were to skip ahead to verse 30, the older brother said, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, he took the money and he parted. And in a very short time, he spent all that he had on prostitutes and reckless living. The most shameful son anyone could ever imagine. Hebrews 11.24 you have this amazing statement about Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Imagine what your life would look like being the son of Moses' daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses knew that that while living didn't lead to happiness. The younger brother did not know this he thought, what better than to have a bunch of money and party and try to satisfy every lustful urge that he has. And I will say to young people, and I guess to every age, sin's biggest lie is that joy is at the end of it. The lasting joy and peace and satisfaction and everything you've been looking for is at the end of it. Some of you in here might be 14, 15, 16, 17. You might be 21. You might be looking for the moment of freedom. You might be looking for that time when you finally get to cut loose. You might be 40 years old and feel pressed in by all the responsibilities and just want to leave your family and go have peace and, and joy and just finally worry about you. It's a lie. It never leads to joy. The younger brother is deceived. And not only that, circumstances outside of your control can happen like a famine that comes at the lowest time of your rebellion because look at what it says in verse 14 and when he had spent everything a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need now we hear that we don't think much but do you realize that Abraham and Jacob had to flee to Egypt when a famine came and Isaac to the land of the Philistines and Ruth and Naomi to Moab In 2 Kings 6.24, if you want to know how bad famine can get, listen to this. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up against Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And as he besieged it, or as they besieged it, until, so the famine was so great, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. That's eight years of wages. That's a bad famine. You're hungry when you're willing to give up eight years of wages for a donkey's head. And not only that, but a fourth part of cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. That's a liter of dove poop, which could be used for fuel, probably that's six months of wages. That's a bad famine. And then we read on and it gets worse. In verse twenty six of Second Kings six, it says this And as the king of Israel was passing on uh, our by on the wall, a woman cried to him, saying, Help my Lord, O king, and he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? from the fleshing floor, from the wine press. And the king asked her, what's your trouble? She said, this woman, so she's pointing to a woman, said, give me your son that we may eat him today. And we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, give give your son that we might eat him. But she had hidden her son. So when Jesus tells a story about famine hitting, when this younger son is in a foreign country with no money and no job, he is in an impossible, worst-case position you can ever imagine. Chasing unrestrained sin and pleasure in rebellion to God has left the younger son in a state he could never have imagined. It was not how he pictured his life going. The world looks so, so exciting in rebellion to his father. John MacArthur writes this, To sin against God is to rebel against his fatherhood, disdain his honor and respect spurn his love, reject his will, unrepentant sinners shun all responsibility and accountability to God. They deny him his place. They hate him. They wish he did not exist. They refuse to love him. They dishonor him. They take the gifts that he has given them and squander them in a life of self-indulgence, dissipation, and unrestrained lust. As a result, they find themselves spiritually bankrupt, empty, destitute, with no one to help, nowhere to turn, and facing eternal death. If you came in here this morning and the deceitfulness of sin was looking pretty good, let this parable bring wisdom to your heart. And then in verse 15, he's still not at rock bottom amazingly because he doesn't turn to his father yet. He says, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Well, that English translation there makes gives him too much dignity because literally what's translated hired out means glued. So he went and glued himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs he became a beggar he wouldn't leave the guy alone and he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate and no one gave him anything he glued himself to this guy this guy just wants to get rid of him go out and feed my pigs i'm not even giving you a salary i'm not even giving you food But, and as so often that little word is the turning point, it is also so in this parable. But when he came to himself, this is the place every sinner needs to come to, himself. He needs to think clearly and see clearly his sin. He needs to know who and what he is. Robert Stein says this phrase translated came to his senses or came to himself is a Hebrew slash Aramaic expression for repentance. This refers not only to the mental process that causes him to think more clearly about his situation, but also to a moral renewal involving Repentance. And so what it means when he comes to himself is he not only realizes my circumstances are bad, but he realizes the moral evil that came before these circumstances that led him to this point. In this parable, this is where true repentance happens. And we know from the other two parables, this is when what? Heaven starts rejoicing, right? When a sinner repents, when a sinner comes to himself, knows who and what he is. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. When he started thinking clearly, what did he think? He thought about his father's generosity. He wasn't just, his father wasn't just any estate holder, but he was one of these unique ones who gave the slaves that worked for him more than enough, which would have been rare in that day. He remembered the goodness and graciousness of God. It's another key to repentance. If you don't know who God is, you won't turn to him. If you think if you go to him, you're going to get a sledgehammer, guess what? You're not going to go to him. But what did he remember? He remembered the graciousness of his father that he showed even to slaves. And so he said, I will arise, I'll go to my father This is a change of direction in his life. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Literally, Father, I've sinned. My sins have piled up to heaven and before you. (laughs) This is a true confession. What it means to confess your sin is to agree with God about your sin. Not to admit that it's there, but it's no big deal. But to agree with God about your sin. He says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my father that I sinned against heaven first. And I did it in his sight, in his father's sight, bringing dishonor and shame to the family. This reminds me of Psalm 51, verse 3. This is the psalm when David is repenting, right? He's committed adultery with Bathsheba, had Uriah killed. He went in a state of unrepentance for over a year. So how dangerous a hardened heart can be. But here's what, here's his confession. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying, God, I see my sin and I know my sin was fundamentally a sin against you. That's what happened to the younger brother here. And then the younger brother says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Is that true? That's true. Treat me as one of your hired servants. One of the signs of true repentance is the sinner who has sinned and brought about terrible consequences doesn't judge the way other people respond to their sin. You know, sometimes a person will sin and it will cause all sorts of people pain and then that person will say, they're not loving, they won't forgive me, they won't do this, they won't do that. That might be true. They'll have to face God with unforgiveness, but the true repenter says, I deserve whatever comes to me. They're not looking to shift the blame. He's saying I'm unworthy to be the son of, Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he runs this through his head. He says, I'm going to go back and this is what I'm going to say. Just treat me like a slave. Now he doesn't even deserve that, but he's hoping in his father's graciousness. That's what's drawing him to go home. And then this wonderful father comes onto the scene who is hideous in the eyes of the Pharisees. And he arose and came to his father. This is verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. Robert Stein says, this is throwing aside oriental behavior and conventions. Jesus as the father Our Jesus has the father in this parable run to his son in order to show God's love, joy, and eagerness to receive the outcasts. What you would never see in that culture is a dignified man who runs in a state ever run. He's got a dignified robe on to show your legs. When I was in Africa... I had to wear pants, even though it was 115 degrees. It would have been disrespectful to show my legs. In that culture, for a father to pick up his robe and run is the most disgusting thing a Pharisee could ever imagine a father doing. Especially since he was eager to kiss him and give him acceptance This is unheard of. That culture would have required restitution if that would even be offered. You know, maybe after years of earning back what he wasted, he could earn his way back to some status, but the fact that the father was looking for him and ran to him made the Pharisees' blood boil. The son, or, and then we read in verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he didn't even get a chance to say, let me be a servant because the father cut him off. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Now the best robe in a family, was only worn by the father, by the patriarch of the family, and only brought out for the most important festivals or the most important celebrations. And the only time a son wore it would be at the oldest son's wedding. And this father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, this younger brother, and put a ring on his hand which signifies that he can make deals in the family. All authority is given back to him and shoes on his feet. The slaves never had shoes, only sons had shoes. Full sonship restored in a half a second just like that quickly go get the best robe get the signet ring put the shoes on his feet this rebellious son hasn't even been able to get out his whole plea and the father has already in joy restored him And then, of all things, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now to kill the fatted calf would be the biggest celebration for the family. A fatted calf can feed over 220 people, which means this would be a village-wide celebration. You know, you find you find a sheep. Call your neighbors and friends and celebrate. That's a pretty big celebration. You f- you find a coin, friends and neighbors, right? But the lost son, who was once dead and is now returned, kill the fatted calf. Full on biggest celebration you can imagine. And at this point the Pharisees would have been almost gagging listening to this story that Jesus invented just for them. The son returned empty-handed, and that's how every repentant sinner must approach God, understanding that salvation is only for ungodly sinners, right? That's what Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, which means he wasn't righteous. The only one that gets counted righteous is the one who knows that God only justifies the ungodly, which is why the self-righteous cannot be saved. They need to see themselves for what they are. Their pride needs to come down. And they begin to celebrate, and that's the point of the other two parables, right? Heaven rejoices. Jesus rejoices when a sinner repents. Now here's the good news. Are we not filled in a world and in a country full of younger sons? You know, when we're self righteous, they're the enemy. But when you dive into this parable and you view yourself as an evangelist, do you you think your neighbors know their lives are broken? A lot of them do. Do you think they know they're in rebellion? A lot of them do. The opportunity before us is exciting. Don't make them enemies. Make them opportunities for heaven to rejoice. Now there's plenty of self-righteous sinners. I can struggle with it. But we're in a world full of in-your-face rebellion against God. They They might even call it that. All right. This is taking too long. Here we go. Verse 25. Now his older brother was in a field. So the older brother doesn't come in until verse 25 now. And as he came, he drew near the house and he heard music and dancing. He called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has, past tense, received him back safe and sound. Now that phrase safe and sound literally means to be at peace. So it has less to do with this physical well-being And more to do that your father has received him back at full peace. There's no restitution to be made. He's fully accepted. But in verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out to entreat him. So for the first time in this story, the Pharisees finally see someone that they think is sane and that is the older brother. Somebody's got to stop this nonsense. And so in holy righteous anger, right? In the Pharisees' mind, their character enters this story. But the father entreated him And then it says, and he answered his father. He doesn't say father. He says, look. From out of the heart, the mouth speaks. This supposed righteous son is looking like he's dishonoring his father. It's no longer secretive. He couldn't keep the anger in any longer. He says, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. And what you hear in that statement is the blindness of the self-righteous. What a lie. Never have I broken one of your commands. And notice how he describes his relationship with his father. It's as slavery. Never have I broken one of your commands. The way he viewed his relationship with his father was it was slavery. He couldn't wait. You see, he was just like the younger son. He wanted his father dead. He wanted the inheritance. He just did it looking better. It was secretive. Never have I disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. You never even gave me a little tiny young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. He could give a rip about his father. He could give a rip about his brother. He could give a rip about his family. He's actually just like the younger son. He wants to get away with his friends and party. He just wants to do it looking good and being Accepted, and you killed the fatted calf for him you don't even give me a young goat you kill the fatted calf with him and he said to him son now this is a different word it's the most tender word you can use in the greek the father in this story is the most tender to this older brother which is incredible because Jesus is actually being tender with the Pharisees. He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So you have the older brother being entreated and then it ends. And the question that everyone would have been asking, and, and if you could see this, the, the way uh, this is written in the original and the, and the way they would have heard this story is this is in a chiastic formula. This, this story plays out, I don't know if you can imagine this, with like an A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A formula now i would have to put it up here and show you so the first scene with the younger brother is in that formula here's how it goes with the older brother a b c d d c b nothing there's a myth missing eighth strophe in the way this story is told it ends abruptly The question is, is what did the older brother do? And that's the point. By this time, they know they're the older brother and the father has entreated them and then it's over. And so they're left to wonder, what's the end of the story? And Jesus is saying, well, you write the ending. You're going to come to the party and celebrate or not? And here's where John MacArthur says what, I would, what we all want to say is and the older brother, like the young, younger brother, fell on his knees in repentance and, and entered into the party and, and, and began to have close fellowship with his father. But he said that would be untrue because we know the end of this story. What the older brother did is he went and he got a piece of wood and he beat his father to death. That's what the religious leaders did to Christ. Christ, in his love and mercy, entreated them. He even left off the end of the parable so that they could write the ending. But their hearts were so hard, they were so blinded in their sin, That they would not come to Christ for forgiveness. Is it not good news knowing that God knows our hearts? We can fool people. We always, we do it all the time. But if God really sees your heart, aren't you glad that God is a God that meets the repentant sinner right there? Full acceptance, full forgiveness, full status in his family going to rule the angels in heaven. And this story does not end negatively though. It actually is a, a, a good ending because Jesus after he was killed on a cross was resurrected three days later to show that his death for sinners accomplished what he came to accomplish. It accomplished what it was meant to accomplish so that you can have righteousness you didn't deserve. If you'll trust Christ, if you'll look in and quit justifying yourself to your wife and to your children and to your friends and to your fellow church members and you will admit, this is who I am and I need a savior. I need Christ. There is a party in heaven celebrating that repentance. Father, I thank you so much for this teaching that Christ gives us. Lord, if we're honest, it's so easy for us to become self-righteous. It is so easy for us to want to harm and injure and attack those who are in open rebellion to you. It's so easy for us to want to bring vengeance, even when you remind us that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So, Father, I pray that you would remind us of who we are, sinners saved by grace, and that you've given us the job of reconciliation to tell this lost world, that they can be reconciled to you in Christ. We're ambassadors. We're witnesses to the ends of the earth of the best news ever. So, Father, fill our hearts with the joy that you have in your heart because of the resurrected Christ that has made salvation a reality for those who are broken and who turn to you in repentant faith.